Exit for Podcast Mutants, Magic, and Marvels is brought to you by the Cage Club Network. So for all things media, check out cageclub.me. That's cageclub.me. And for all things X's for Podcast, check out X's for Podcast on Twitter and YouTube. Hey everybody, welcome back to X's for Podcast, the show we take a look at comics, mutants, magic, and marvels week after week through their many monthly titles. I'm Nico, and you guys can check me out on Twitter and Instagram at NicoAction, that's N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N. Today, we have four awesome books on our docket. We're going to kick things off with Hellions number 17 before looking at Moon Knight's number four and five, and then closing things out with the Shang-Chi number six finale that finishes up this first amazing arc of Shang-Chi versus the Marvel Universe. And to kick things off, Hellions never ceases to amaze us. Now, this issue, the penultimate issue number 17, has really brought the book a lot closer to the high heavy action of the early issues while still keeping in a lot of the psychological subterfuge that has made these last few issues so gripping. It's really exciting and we can't wait to see how the series closes out. Now we might even have a special surprise for you guys when we cover Hellions number 18 so keep a listen and if you guys want to take a look at everything we're doing don't forget to check us out over on Twitter and Instagram at X is for podcast. Hey everybody, welcome back to Exes for Podcast, the show where we take a look at... I completely forgot what the fuck we take a look at. Let me try that again. Woof! Hey everybody, welcome back to Exes for Podcast, the show where we take a look at comics, mutants, magic, and marvels week after week through their many monthly titles. I'm Nico, and you guys can check me out on Twitter and Instagram at NicoAction. That's N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N. Hey guys, I'm Evelyn, the Comic Canary, Taylor's version. You can find me on Instagram and Twitter at comic <laughs> underscore canary. Hey guys, I am the star of the new series, Here Comes Honey Mew Mew, Broadway, and you can find me at BWay3RD on Twitter. And I'm Arturo, and those are some tough acts to follow, so uh, you can find me at Mr. Toybox on Twitter and Instagram. And I'm Jonah, and you can follow me over on Twitter and Instagram at PeakJonah, that's P-E-A-K, and we hope you survive this experience, unlike Nanny, and also potentially like Orphan Maker. But now I also have a question, I know that there have been a couple of memes about Nanny specifically, about the show with Fran Drescher, the Nanny. Has anybody ever made the joke, oh, Mr. Sinister, <laughs> I am like I'm like 92% sure I've seen that on Twitter. I don't know if that's just like the Mandela effect of like the weird hive mind that we all share there, but I feel like I've seen that. Or maybe you willed it into existence retroactively. We can all only hope as such. Now, that of course means we're here today to talk about Hellions number 17, the penultimate issue of Zeb Wells and Steven Segovia's incredible series. Now, that is of course Zeb Wells and Steven Segovia on writing and art duties respectively. We have Rain Bernado on color art with VC's Ariana Mar, friend of the show, on lettering and production. I gotta go out of my way. We have been making sure to compliment the production team who are always going out of their way to give each one of these books a unique identity but still have them fit into the universe as a whole and if you're looking to understand a little bit more about what a production artist entails as opposed to a letterer or perhaps someone like Tom Muller on design you definitely want to check out a number of our amazing interviews with Ariana Mars such as our paneling discussion of one-on-one by women in comics featuring comic artist Tori Sheehan or our previous interview with Ariana where she talked a lot about her incredible Marvel work 
and what led her to lettering. All right, so enough commercial and sales pitch. Let's talk about what was, in my mind, going to be a solid, you know, B-plus kind of issue, and it turned out to be an A across the board for me. I was so happy with this issue. Let's set it all up. Where was everybody with Hellions going into this kind of Inferno trial of Magneto? How do you guys feel knowing that the whole line is resetting where we pick up in this issue? Well, I mean, I've come to expect a lot higher than B plus from Hellion. So I don't know where that came out of. Like Hellions is without fail my favorite comic every week that it comes out. Whenever it comes out, that's the first one I read. And it is always packed with so much humor and also character development and all of these weird, cool, emotional beats. And it's just like, it is the gift that keeps on giving. I'm so sad that it's that it's got to end. But yeah, I, I'm definitely at a point where my expectations are very high for Hellions and they continue to be exceeded so that's nice that that he's finishing so strong or that they are because it's really you know team effort absolutely it's definitely one of those books that I always look forward to reading and even if it's not the best one of the week it's still something I really enjoy yeah I always read Hellion's last to like seal up my you know X-Men Wednesdays I mean it's action-packed it also has the sort of the politics of Krakoa and the interpersonal drama and all all of that and and like so perfectly woven together and that coupled with the comedy like this i mean the the mew mew mutant scum of it all it's just like it's so funny like it's like shockingly funny issue 16 isn't a bad issue and i'm not going to pretend that it is but it's not the most exciting it felt a little too slow for me personally so here in issue 17 where it's extremely a lot more fast paced i'm a lot happier i really like hellions because mostly because it's Characters that I don't think would have been put in a team or a title otherwise. You have all these really interesting characters and ones that you specifically want to root for. Characters like Conan and Greycrow versus characters you don't really want to root for like Sinister and Manuel. So it's uh, it's a very interesting cast that I like that it's not your typical A-listers where you're like, okay, well, they're going to be in every book and they're always going to be in something. So I have expectations of this is going to help make sure these characters break into the forefront of popularity. So when it's not always the most exciting issue, I get a little upset because it's like, oh, well, then what are we doing? Because it's supposed to be the fun book. It's the funny book. And when it's not funny, ha-ha funny, it's like, oh, well, okay. But every other book is already doing sad, serious stuff. You could be ha-ha funny. Well, and that is the perhaps, you know, the only thing I want to clarify is I think a B plus. Okay, so I'm a, I'm a strict fan of A is excellent. A is like so good. Like I'm saving my A's for Hox, Pox, and Inferno. You know, so I think a B plus is still like, damn, that was way better than average. I just feel like one of the things that Hellions falls folly to is maybe perhaps what I also think that Marauders falls folly to that we recently discussed in a recording for Marauders 24. No, Marauders 25. I think Marauders and Hellions are both perhaps going to be better remembered as titles than any specific issue, which sometimes means I read an issue and go, wow, this was okay. It's going to read better in trade. And that's maybe where I get a little bit B-plus-y about Hellions 
Guardians, it's not that it's ever a lackluster title, but on occasion, as Jonah just said, I feel like not enough happens issue to issue to sustain me. It sustains my $3.99. That's never a question, especially with the art. As you pointed out, Arturo, I really agree with you that Steven Segovia's guiding force on the art has been tremendous, but who could forget some of the amazing fill-ins, such as uh, Carmen Canero and her brilliant job helping to create the Locust Vile over in the pages of Ten of Swords, Hellion's crossover. Yeah, I mean, I will say that I think one huge distinction between Hellions and Marauders is that although Hellions will, you know, in hindsight and, and once it's all collected or whatever, maybe read a little bit like these like disparate adventures, like, okay, we had, you know, Goblin Queen and then we have these the Smileys and we had Arcade and like Locust Vile, like how does it all tie together? And I think that there is going to be a much more unified point to this whole story than there has been for marauders i feel like that is like one of the biggest strengths of hellions is that it came in with a clear mission right like the shorthand being the suicide squad of of rakoa right little mutant rehab group uh to do all the dirty work and it did that but it also delivered so much more whereas i think marauders started off with a little bit more of a vague mission statement where it was pretty clear but then it became clear that following that mission statement was going to be too much delivering exactly what you're expecting so it kind of turned into the Kate and Emma show for better or for worse and I feel like Marauders just kind of floundered a bit and wasted Storm and then sends off Storm like thanks so much for being part of the team and then you look back and you're like yeah but there was never even a great Storm issue you know like you have Storm there and you did nothing with her so long story short i think marauders had an an embarrassment of riches and did not do enough with the characters at their uh at, you know at cherry's disposal whereas i think hellions got this garbage pail kids collection ragtag group of people that nobody cared about and delivered so much more than anybody could have ever dreamed you know when that first solicit dropped so i think there's they're you know their contemporaries are comparable but like there's no comparison i agree and i i feel like one of the interesting things with Hellions that has been more successful than Marauders, but I would say a lot of the OG books as well, um, is that it has connected to other sort of things going on in Krakoa, right? So like, not only do you have like the elevation of Conan, which I think sort of culminates in her being added as a great captain, but you also have this sort of brewing clone problem. You have the sinister of it all, right? Like sinister and the chimeras and and the way in which like Arako gets brought into that and then like the conflict between Tarn and Storm falls out of that even these questions about robots and AIs even like Nanny and the like mutant orphans like is all sort of sprinkled throughout there like there is this really powerful way that Hellions has elevated these characters but also still stayed connected to the sort of broader Krakoan era ex-office project in a way that has been better I think than a lot of other stories especially the old older ex-office books. That's such a great point. That is such a great point. Because like, yeah, you're right. Zeb has done kind of these stories that you can tell he wanted to tell, but also kind of keeping an eye on the broader objectives and moving and moving the ball forward. I think that's like the problem with some of the other books is you're like, okay, but yeah, like what happened? Like at the end of the day, what really happened with X-Corp that really mattered? Eh, you know, like not to trash any books. I mean, you know, but I, I agree with you 100% there. So to take a look at what we all seem to agree is certainly an exciting 
exciting issue of an exciting title, Hellions number 17 sees a sort of classic penultimate X-Men situation where the day seems lost and we are certainly facing, well, Nanny is certainly facing doom. Now, one of the things that I love that you keep bringing up Broadway is Mew Mew. And it's sort of hard to discuss fiction without talking about the cutified chipification situation that we find ourselves in. You know, we are all at the disposal of Baby Yoda these days. And I feel like it was certainly playing against a cultural archetype in Grogu automatically has our love these days. So, of course, this cute little green motherfucker's gonna get our love. It just so happens he's a mass murdering fuckhead. How did you guys feel about the, in many ways, betrayal of Nanny for kind of sort of for betraying Orphan Maker? I mean, I've I've just been a big fan of these misfits. And honestly, like, Orphan Maker and Manuel, I've had, like, some sort of, like, weird obsession with where I'm just like, oh, these kind of, these people kind of suck. And I want to see them be happy. I don't know why. They don't deserve it, but I want them to be. And for Orphan Maker, I just felt so bad for him the last few issues. And I'm just like, you don't deserve this. I mean, yeah, you probably are a grown-ass man, but you still don't deserve this because you have the emotional intelligence of a five-year-old at this point. And I just, I I wish Nanny and he could have had like some sort of reconciliation prior to everything else. Personally, for me, I wish it was delved into a little bit more the specific decline of the relationship because it feels like that part of Nanny basically abandoning Peter is a little rushed in the sense of it feels like it came out of nowhere. Actually, no, I take that all back because it didn't come out of nowhere. It's when they died in Otherworld and then Nanny came back and started disliking Peter. Maybe I would have liked it explored more as a gradual decline but that's not how it went down so that's no personal preference i'm not sure why nanny only has room for one child in her life i feel like she could have multiple children and my other thought in my head was i wonder if nanny knows about the orphanage that's on krakoa and if she would help law slash stacy x i don't know if they would accept her help but it would give her something no keep her away keep her far far away give this woman no more babies no additional babies to crazy egg woman no no i disagree give her a little you know a little telepathic Listen, we're on Krakoa. We should be able to, between resurrection protocols and and Proteus and Emma and the Cuckoos or whatever, we should be able to help rehab these people. And I think that's exactly where she should be. I agree with you, Jonah. She should she should get a, a gig over there with Stacey X. But at what point are you rehabbing them? At what point are you psychologically reprogramming them to be the kind of person you want them to be? Is Nanny okay with who she is? Then she's a horrifying degenerate and throw her down the hole, but don't change her against her will that that violates free will well i i think one of the central questions with hellions that like i i mean the the issue where like emma empath and i think it was 15 emma and and empath sort of set off alex to destroy sinister amongst other things like it really brought the central question of hellions to me to the fore which is like was this team genuinely here to rehab them or was it to give mr sinister a pet project like we know that his interest was not to rehab them right but like i'm curious as to who else on the council was genuinely like invested in the well-being of these people because i don't know it just seems like the whole thing is kind of sketch like i I don't know how to like fully articulate that idea but something about the I mean, 
it kind of is what Kurt says about Krakoa as a whole, but there's something sort of rotten in the core of it. And I, I wonder if like Psylocke is going to be the one to blow that shit up or, you know, one of these characters, because like, what is, I, I don't know. I just don't see that this is working out. <laughs> um, and I feel like no one seems to care on Krakoa. But they will, because we know Sinister is going to end up in the hole sooner than later, or that's at least what it looks like from the, the solicits of, of that beautiful cover art. So we know that they're wrapping things up here. So it's all going to come to a crashing halt. And, and I think that's great. I mean, I think some stories, you know, you move the ball forward and sometimes you burn it all down on your way out, you know, and leave leave an opening for other people to, to pick it up in a different way. But like shutting this down in a in a way that has consequences like sinister is no longer on the council or whatever happens that's that's big those are high stakes that's awesome now i don't want to cast a really specific light on something but I do have to make an interesting point about this issue. One of the things that I think this issue was really good for was it just sort of put a lot of pieces all together. Ultimately, we saw our Hellions advance on the right and move the story forward. I think any page you get with Grey Crow looking mad fine is a page from the gods. Thank you very much. Can we talk about Grey Crow's hair for just a second? Sorry to interrupt. It, it is He's so hot. It is the messiest, like, top-knot, like, I don't even care. Like, I just threw this little, you know, down here in Miami, we call it una liga, but in my hair. And, like, it's just effortlessly beautiful. Sorry to interrupt, but... No, and I actually love what you interrupted with because it only supports my point. I specifically liken this issue at large but i mean this issue but the book at large to garth ennis and steve dillon's preacher there is so much fucking preacher in this book but it's like what if everyone was tulip o'hare and there is something i mean to say that something looks like steve dillon to me is like it's like holy grailing it and there is just something so powerful about the expressive art throughout this book how did you guys feel about steven segovia's storytelling composition steven segovia is a person who very much likes to surrender the idea of panel structure formality we can specifically see it in the progressive ideas and reshaping uh using digital page seven with the progressive panels shifting and then the angular disjointment with the middle row of panels we then shift to a more standard structure before on page digital page 11 we see the reflection of the binoculars in the shape of the panel and then we begin to see the overlapping create energy and movement i just think segovia is someone who really understands movie picture-esque telling and i wonder what you guys thought about the art in this issue honestly i wasn't that crazy about it but i genuinely love that response talk to me about why because i love to hear when people have another take on art that's so important and powerful so I know you're talking about Preacher, but hot take, I'm not the biggest fan of the art style of Preacher. I love the story, don't get me wrong, but the but the hyper, like, emotion. Everybody looks like Meatloaf. Yeah. I get it. I don't know why. I still enjoyed it, but it wasn't, like, my favorite, you know? 
See, oh, I do. The, I definitely do. The, the thing that I'm like so obsessed with uh, about Segovia is that he does this thing that was kind of like a very 90s vibe. It's I think he's incredible. I, I don't know. I, I, I'm obsessed with his art. Yeah, I'm with Arturo. I, I It does remind me of watching a cartoon. I mean, even just the transition between the pages with Conan and Emma switching over to the video feed of Orphan Maker attacking the base, like even that feels very dynamic that it's like I could imagine a show where like we're going from that one scene and cutting immediately to not an actual shot of what's happening, but the video feed from the perspective of the folks from the right watching Orphan Maker's assault on their base. That kind of dynamism I find like very fascinating. He also draws an amazing sad Alex. Like it makes me really happy when Alex is sad. Very rise and fall of the Shi'ar Empire, right? It's got that sort of lack of topography to the face in a very realistically flat way. And I appreciate it very much. Jonah, how did you feel about the art? You know, I think about some of the depth of color that we can see on digital page 18 when Mew Mew goes pew pew and everything gets real sad. And I also think about the reserved use of color, as Broadway pointed out, back on those early pages in the Con and Emma interaction. So I'm looking at the art and I don't think I registered the art on my first initial read. And what I mean by that is I don't know if I noticed the art. I enjoy the art. I think it's quite good. I like where they use the expressive colors versus where they use their reserved colors. I think it works well for the story that they're trying to tell. But on my initial read, it wasn't actually something that I was really paying attention to. I think I was so drawn to the story of what was going on, especially with uh, Mew Mew blasting Nanny, that I was like, huh, oh, the art's pretty good. I want to give a special shout out moment to when Hanan, like Psychic Daggers, one of the extremists. Yeah. I was like, yeah, no, this is right. This This is what she's supposed to be doing. I think the art really helps And it's a very interesting thing when you don't notice the art, I feel. It's almost like it did its job where you're you're so immersed in it, where you're not actually paying too much attention to everything going on. It belies a seamlessness. Conan's psychic dagger reminds me just like of the, I think it's the second issue when she murks Wildchild with a psychic dagger. Like I find that to be like so well portrayed. It's just cool to watch her like stab people in the head and it just like scramble their brain. Maybe that's because I'm a psychopath. But No, no, but I agree with you. And for me, I think that is like the coolest, most unique power signature for her. You know, like it got so complicated eventually. It was kind of like, I think we said this on a recent uh, episode. It was like she was like a, a star sapphire, you know, telepath and yeah. she was like making all these different weapons and whatever. But the thing that I loved the most was I remember when she first got it and it was like visually such a cool, striking, original thing. And it also has limits, right? Like she can only, she has to be in like melee range to like get you. She can't, it's not going to cut anything, but it's going to fuck up your head. Like And how Jim Lee 90s, like a video game, like that sort of sort of thinking about ranging what a great point 
Yeah, it's like a cool limitation. And like since they, you know, since she and Betsy were split up, like, you know, we talk about this periodically, like who's getting what, right? And like, you know, Betsy kept custody of purple hair and Quanan's back to being, you know, a raven haired, gorgeous, you know, uh, assassin wearing the same bathing suit. So she kept the bathing suit. Like they both have some kind of butterfly energy signature. Um, I hope we never see Conan, you know, manifest the butterfly wings that helped her fly. I thought that was so corny, like maybe in like the worst case scenario, like as a last resort, she could do that. But I love this going back to like, it's an assassin's kind of ninja's weapon that she can use in combat that also that ties her physicality to her telepathy in a, in a combative way. I think it's just brilliant. And I, I just want to point out that over in Excalibur, we just saw uh, Betsy, stripped of her Captain Britain powers, use her telepathy in, in a combative way, and she absolutely did not manifest a psychic dagger. So that is a Conan exclusive. And I love that perspective on remembering that they were always two women and sort of dividing out the identity visually is such a striking thing. I constantly forget to say, oh, right, Psylocke used to have purple hair. I love that distinction. And, you know, Evelyn, as a woman with combat training, I have to wonder, how do you feel about that sort of identity with a singular weapon? Is there something to the iconography of the different versions of Psylocke's weapon over the years that strikes you in different ways? Or are you just happy that it's finally settled? It definitely strikes me in interesting ways because I come from very traditional Japanese martial arts is my background. And every weapon has kind of its own personality, its own lore with it, its own history. Whereas for me, my weapon of choice when I started weapon training, even though I did several weapons, my signature weapon became the battle fans. That was more of a flowy with a sharp edge kind of combat style. But I noticed with Quanin that when she goes from like the sword to the daggers, it's always really interesting because a sword is a little bit more sophisticated in Japanese tradition, it's very much for the higher echelon versus daggers were more of the assassin kind of weapon and a hidden one that anyone can use, even women, for self-defense if they had the right money for it. So it's definitely kind of a every man's tool. And I really like that because seeing her just discovering herself and her different personalities at different times in her own history. Okay, so what I heard is daggers killing coach, swords killing first class. And I really love that perspective. And thank you so much for bringing that to the table. And I actually have a question I want to bring to all of you. As we head into the final issue, there's a lot of questions that, of course, loom over our head as fans, readers, and, you know, I'll be honest, not to sound like, oh, who the fuck we is, but like, you know, there is something about the fact that we come together to talk about these books on the regular where we're pretty actively involved emotionally in the future of these titles. And that emotional involvement is something that definitely struck me throughout reading this issue. I couldn't help but notice that thanks to certain 
certain things being mentioned and certain things happened. Psylocke is a woman who knows what it means to kill without a child. And now Peter is a boy who was forced into killing without a mother. And there is sort of a beautiful homogenization that can come from this. Nanny is absolutely a problematic, sadistic nightmare. She's not a good woman, and she's not a good mom. She could be, and I'll even give you guys she could be. And I, I, who am I to say the other fuck otherwise, right? But she is abusive. And the idea that she could be no longer in a position to abuse her former ward, yet he could still get the kind of love he needs, and Conan can put together her life. I think there is some beauty to it. And, you know, with Grey Crow by her side, I don't think there's anything she can't do. How do you guys feel about the possibility of some of the reunification of emotional identity, whether it's Wild Child as a beta to Psylocke, Grey Crow as a sub to Psylocke, Peter as a child to Psylocke? I can't stop at this. It's a lot of everybody to Psylocke. I mean, that was something I was thinking about because in Excalibur this week as well, like we see Quanin and Grey's Crow kind of on a date. Absolutely on a date. And no kind of about it. No yeah, they were absolutely on a date. Like they were holding hands and everything. And he was dressed so cute. He, he like, was like got a new shirt. Yeah, yeah. So like just seeing that relationship develop is really fun. And seeing her relationship with like with Alex with like kind of that forgiveness and her thing with Cyclops where it's like, I don't blame my sins on other people. Bam. And <laughs> And just seeing how she she really does, she sees the innocence in Wild Child. She sees the potential, like, troubled kid that needs guidance and Orphan Maker. Um, she sees that Manuel needs, like, a kick in the ass sometimes. And she just, she doesn't hold back from her feelings about other people. But I feel like her intuition is always so on point. It's cool to watch her sort of develop her own sort of, I don't know, House of K. I mean, I guess because she's on part of the Great Captains now, there's not really space for the like, Quiet Council role. But, like, she's one of those people, I feel like every member of the Quiet Council has their sort of collective. And so do the Captains to a certain extent, but it will be interesting to see Quanin's family sort of develop and what role that takes on. I mean, if she's replacing Morgan, like, I wonder, like, does her squad in whatever it looks like after Hellions 18, do they roll with her? Because I feel like I don't know where else they go. I feel like she's the only one that gets them. Like, even Alex was calling them weirdos, and it's like, and Alex, you're a weirdo too. Don't we see her on the cover of the Marauders Annual by Steve Orlando? She is joining the Marauders, you're right, you're right. So it'll be interesting to see, I guess, what happens to the rest of them my theory is like some folks are going to make it and some folks aren't right like i don't know if we get any more redemption for empath right like i i don't think he makes makes the cut but i do think that conan alex gray crow like that little thruple and kyle i would love to see the four of them stick together i think nanny like who knows where she ends up and i think we got to talk about what's going to happen to orphan maker because the way that this ends is pretty intense that's what i'm saying i want him to be psylocke's new ward you know she needs a kid he needs a mom she's a killer he doesn't want to be a killer but now he's killed i mean like family good family have good family you got uh, an older weird dog brother and a super cool gun toting half-legged awesome stepdad and then you have nanny coming in and talking about mr sheffield there was a 
theory floating around X Twitter. Um, so there's a moment. So they leave Empath, right? And I was not keen on the face he made. Like he was like glaring at everyone when they left him. And we know that he's sort of struggling with the fact that he, because we saw this in in issue sixteen, that he's like struggling with the fact that he's a sociopath and everyone hates him. So I am curious, like you know, the cover for eighteen makes it look like they're all sort of in trouble in front of the council. And I wonder with Orphan Maker breaking the law, if, if, like this theory basically was that like Empath will take the blame for what Orphan Maker did and go in the hole for him. And I feel like that's probably the only way to redeem him because he's like a psychopath. I hope that Empath saves the day. And I know it's a crazy thing to say, Ooh, but like, I really cool. want him to be okay. Like, I hate to say it, but like, I love him. Please keep crying because your tears feed me right now. I love this. I didn't realize that you read Empath's Manifesto, Nico. Boo! (laughs) (laughs) So so we've talked about it before on the podcast with Hellions. Empath is a character, in my mind, very similar to Quentin Quire in that you love to see fail. But especially, at least for issue 16, which was my favorite part, we saw Empath be upset by the idea of having to constantly play the villain. He doesn't mind taking the downfall because in his mind he doesn't care. He's never had to care about things. But I think that through this age and through this team, he's starting to realize that he might have to start caring. And it might not, it might be too much to constantly have to be seen as the villain. So I'm very interested to see where that part of his storyline goes because I don't want Empath to be redeemed. I don't think there is anything you can really do to redeem him. I think there are great gestures, but he's a character that fundamentally doesn't deserve to be redeemed because they think that invalidates a lot of his own agency and the things that he's done. And the, or the lack of agency that he's given other characters. I don't think that's fair to say. I, I don't think it would be personally a good idea to redeem him. I mean, I, I was like, I'm, I'm going to be the Gemini here and kind of agree with you both because I would love to see it Broadway, like honestly. But I see what Jonah's saying because the thing about Empath, you know, for listeners at home, like that makes him so irredeemable is a lot of his manipulations and the way he uses his powers is uh, very non-consensual and it's certainly heavily implied if not outright canon you know that he violated amara in like a pretty horrific way and you know yeah i i do think that that's a valid thing where it's kind of like okay there's some there's some bad guys that are just irredeemable and that's kind of i think what zeb's it been giving us the whole time he's never like made a case for like look at this sympathetic character like at best empath has been cruel and funny but like he's just a shit you know it's and the fact that we've felt any pang of sympathy with him and this is the second time i feel it the first time was when when after he had you know delivered emma's message and he was at the white palace like hiding out and he felt so alone and it's like this guy's such a shit stain but the way he's being handled and written i don't like him but i i I see him struggling and i feel that i just want to see him broken i want something to happen to him with what he does you know with like the non-consensual controlling i would just like him to kind of get a piece of his own medicine and not necessarily redeemed but at least like now he has like some potential empathy for what's going on and he just see him just kind of like walk away from everything that would be ideal for me
Hey everybody, Nico here again. Now this next segment is kind of two segments. This is both Moon Knight 4 and 5 with a lot of the shipping delays. It wound up leaving Moon Knight 4 in kind of limbo for us for a little while, and before you knew it, it was time to record number 5. So here's back-to-back coverage of Moon Knight number 4 and number 5 by the same team as they continue the investigation as to what makes Mark Spector want to be a good man. Hello, and welcome to Exes for Podcast, where we read about... Marvel Comics' Mutants, Magic, and uh, Marvels. Today we're hitting on the magic portion. I'm Steve, your host. You can find me on Twitter at HowdyDuda. That's H-O-W-D-Y-D-U-D-A. And today, early on a Sunday, is with me... Hey, it's Nathan! You can find me online at DazzlerAOA. That's mainly Twitter. I forget I have Instagram most of the time. So mainly Twitter. That's where you can find me. Hey, I'm Raven, a.k.a. Dame Red Bento. You can find me over on, like, TikTok and Twitter, mostly. So come on over, start a conversation, get yourself some commission art, you know, the good stuff. You do love those TikToks. <laughs> I do, weirdly. Hey, guys, I'm Drew. You can find me online on Twitter and Instagram at Drewsifer3. That's at D-R-E-W-S-I-P-H-E-R. And today we're talking about Black Male, the fourth issue of Moon Knight. For our writer today, we have Jed McKay, credited as artist Alessandro Capuccio, our color artist, the incredible Rochelle Rosenberg, and on letters, VCs Corey Pettit. So this issue, this issue is a, a little bit of a quieter one. It's more of an exploration of the psyche of Moon Knight and the question of why people in this life, heroes, villains, and those in between, wear their masks. The many reasons they give for their masks and the real reasons beneath it. And we get to see the ways that people change when they're around people that they've known from the past and how that that affects their perception of themselves. What did what did you all think about this issue? I'd like to start off with something that I think has been waiting for a while nathan tell me how you felt about tigra (gasps) yay okay all right all right so tigra i love her so okay the relationship that tigra and mark had back in west coast avengers was always tigra is this this great fun she's a very flirty kind of character so she she had that relationship with mark Spector in the past so i i loved seeing her brought in to be that character piece because she's really just a great reflection of where he was then versus where he is now but just like ah tigra like oh i can't tell you like how much i love her like seriously this is a character that she actually started out as the cat way back then and then had her own for she had her own series at the time got canceled after issue four she got introduced to the cat people and then she became a werecat and her whole persona has evolved with that werecat persona and you know the if you if you go back and read any of the cat stuff it's totally different tigra than what it is now. I, I also love how Tigra is a character is so connected to Hellcat as a character because you've got that original cat suit that she had that Patsy Walker found in the lab somewhere and she decided to put it on for some reason. Don't ask me why. And then after she was blackmailing Beast to become a superhero. But yeah, I love how connected Tigra is to another one of my favorite characters, Hellcat. And I just, I, ah, she's great. I love her. Yeah. Yeah. Something I've always loved about Hellcat is that she is a pre-Marvel character. From, I she think, is. Comics days. So one, one of the oldest characters in continuity and for her to have inherited the cat identity, which feels like a pre-Marvel identity uh, from Greer is uh, just always one of those weird little lore facts. I love how all of that stuff, all of those early comics are of Patsy's are in continuity 
as actually having been comics written by her mother about young uh, young Patsy. So yes, yeah, that's that's a whole thing too. Yeah, <laughs> um, Raven, uh, how did you feel about seeing your West Coast Avengers back together again? Honestly, I was so happy, and I I love this this version of Tigra because I read West Coast Avengers way back in the day, and Tigra was was quite a bit more unhinged, wildly unpredictable, very feral. And and I loved her back then because she was, you know, powerful and literally shredding enemies and whatnot. But I didn't always necessarily like the fact that she didn't seem to have too much of a personality. And so I'm finally getting to see a far more developed and refined and grown-up version of Tiger, and it makes me ridiculously happy. And so happy to see them back together with the Moon Knight because, like, ah, yay! This is my childhood in a good way. Yeah, I really enjoyed their interactions, and uh, I'm excited to get a little bit more into like what that means for Moon Knight in this issue. Drew, I don't know much about your long-term history with Moon Knight. How did you feel about seeing all these much older characters come back into play? So I actually, I don't have much experience with any really of these characters except for Moon Knight. It's fun to see, uh, as I call her, Tigra <laughs> in the mix, just because like we haven't, we haven't seen him with any like Marvel, other Marvel characters in this, in like this particular series so far, you know, it's adding like a little, uh, you know, mixture, like adding something into the mix. My favorite part about this Tigra interaction is that she comes in at a time when we're we're we start off with the therapist and Mark talking to his therapist about how he's not Mark Spector wearing his wearing mask. I shouldn't I shouldn't call him Mark. Sorry, uh, Mr. Knight says that he's not Mark Spector when he's wearing the mask, and he gives her a reason that is later contradicted by other reasons he gives in this uh, issue. But that doesn't necessarily mean that multiples of these are not part of the truth. There's a setup here, time and again, with him and other characters like Rampage, our villain for the issue with how they are ordinary people who seem to like really hate being ordinary. They don't want to be the person that they were, uh, the person that they feel is dead to them. They want to be this larger than life super person. And I think that's really funny because when Tiger Tiger comes back in, she's just like clawing at his mask like an absolute cat. Uh, let me let me let me get that off you. I want to see your face, Mark. And him just being like, "I'm just being exposed like this. This is ridiculous." The giving her excuses for why he can't have the mask off, and her just easily dismissing them out of hand because it's like these aren't real problems for you, Mark. You know, I know there's something else in there, but I love that she refuses to take him seriously in this like noirish dark spooky series that we've been reading him in as the character he's been for so long she just sees him as the man she used to know and he in her presence immediately regresses back to that because he just like he's putting up a front you know and underneath that is still the mark that she knew and i think that is so cool to like break the spell the series has placed on moon knight for a bit and give us a peek more into like the actual person who's still living in there. I, I'd like to go back to the, the psychiatrist's office. That's... That like the way he interacted is is often how people who have been very traumatized will speak to to a psychiatrist or a psychologist, a counselor, where they only give pieces of themselves. They don't necessarily reveal all of themselves right up front because you know hey you could be friend you could be foe i don't know if i'm mentally readily to like handle everything so he he honestly gives one of the safer answers to her about why he wears the mask well well you know if i wear this mask uh i'm not mark specter anymore it's like okay yeah that's a, that tracks for for a superhero slash supervillain slash you know mask wearing vigilante type yeah okay fine like <laughs> he he revealed something that is very superhero and 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 tracks in line with a superhero 
And later on, we find out it's a very, it's a much more human answer. So we can see he's not ready to open up about the, the more human aspects of himself to his psychives. Yeah, I, I completely agree. And it's interesting how it's like, it's a much more human answer, but it's also kind of the same answer. You know, mm-hmm. he doesn't want to look at himself in the mirror. Mm-hmm. Yeah, He just doesn't, he, he can't see Mark Spector because Mark Spector is who he really is. Or at least that's how, that's how he feels is who he feels is under the mask of Mr. Knight, for example. Um, mm-hmm. Although, of course, he's got other identities. So first, like on that, I love how his phone is just like <laughs> just cracked to fuck. I love that. Like, yeah. uh, I love the choice of the Killing Moon uh, by Echo. Yes. Uh, excellent ringtone. Really great song. Yeah, I, I, I was <laughs> when I was on mute, I was playing it, and I was like, "Yes, this is very Moon Knight." Yeah, Moon Knight song. Still yes, Moon Knight. Uh, Absolutely but, listened to it this morning. But is isn't that the, like kind of to go off of what you were saying, Raven? Isn't that kind of like how we all are? Like, just not even with just psychiatrists, but just like is is people in general like. Like, we're all like when when you've got these traumas that you're dealing with we're all so afraid to like and nobody wants to do that nobody wants to jump in and be like hey this is me like i'm fucking crazy like everybody wants to you, you you've got to slowly reveal <laughs> all of your issues instead of just going out there and be like hey here's all my crazy like and we do that because you know it's, it's a protection mechanism because we're just so we feel so damaged in ourselves that like we've it's how how you reveal that and every time you reveal something you you just get so terrified that you know the other person you know be it you know like friends be it like romantic relationships be it like whatever that they're gonna say like whoa that's too much <laughs> and they're like, oh that's a lot of trauma and you're like oops sorry i thought everybody went through that i'm just gonna be over here <laughs> yeah it's it's that fear that if you trauma dump the person in front of you is going to just poof into to non-existence or use that information against you that's it yeah that that happens quite often yeah and uh, it's, yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> We even see uh, exactly that happen in a way in this issue where Rampage, our villain, has found out one of Mark's identities, one of Moon Knight's identities, Stephen Grant, and uses it against him. In the same issue that we see, that we see him tell tell Tigra like, "No, I this mask protects my identities. I'm Spider Man," and then she's like, "You don't have anybody to protect. Everybody knows who you are." But she she means that everybody knows that Mark Spector is yeah. Moon Knight, not Stephen Grant, and that is uh, an interesting little twist here in how. His finances get tied up. Uh, what did what did you all think about the the like? There's there's some Batman parallels in this. Hmm. I mean, I know people are always drawing parallels between Batman and Moon Knight, but I I never really see it that much. But like, this is a nice one. He even says like, "I'm not a great detective." I never said that. <laughs> <laughs> that's pretty ridiculous but the fact that like you know he, this is another story like where batman loses his money and he has to deal with it the the money that allegedly keeps him crime fighting i thought this was like the best possible exploration of that because where batman loses his money and goes oh well i'm still the batman because i can still beat people up obsessively moon knight on the other hand sees it as like a gift you know no no wealthy priest has has ever been good in one of the greatest panels in this issue i think he's on start rampage as he's beating him up and it's just like yeah you can take my money sure i won't be able to buy like moon discs or whatever but like that's fine you might even make me stronger right oh my god I, I mean, oh. that was such an amazing panel like oh i started to read les miserables like the actual book by victor hugo which mm-hmm. is like you know a very it's very long um but, but one thing <laughs> in that book that that they talk about is like that idea 
idea of like if you are a priest or like a um a person of god like that you should always be giving your money to like like charity and stuff and that like you shouldn't be keeping it for yourself i'm grown up roman catholic you know like it was kind of a big part of my life as a kid and just like seeing that the way like a lot of priests and like religious people you know they're not like that anymore you know they just like Mm -hmm. take all this money for themselves and it's just like you know okay you know that idea of super churches and like if you look at uh, you know some of the, the more popular ones just what they do to protect their money more than to do the mission that they maybe originally set out to do and how that power and money corrupts maybe their original intentions. I love how they were able to tie that into this issue without making it seem so overbearing. Like they they gave us a message, but they didn't hit you over the head with it. Yeah, and it's like to tie it all together too, it's that um, like Moon Knight uses this money to like fund his little business that he has right now going but he honestly doesn't need it because he still uses his well mr knight is funding like using it as his funding but moon knight does all of the protecting of the neighborhood still like he's the one that does like the crime fighting so he's -hmm. still helping the neighborhood the money like he still he needs the money to, to help the neighborhood but he also doesn't really need I, yeah, I think the money just goes towards medical bills and replacing like white clothes. <laughs> honestly, honestly, white clothes yeah, not and like dry, dry, dry cleaning. Yeah, oh, because of all the blood you have to get out. Uh, oh even God. just the dirt from any times yeah. on a rooftop. Oh yeah, and like the sight and ugh. yeah, absolutely. A lot of bleach has to use. I I love the fact that he's like it's just money. Like yeah, it's it's nice to have, but it's not the end all be all of me. And to me, that that really speaks to a person who didn't necessarily grow up wealthy. So they know what it's like to be poor. They can they can still function. They can manage. They can they can find workarounds. It's yeah. not the end all be all of their personality. Whereas certain other characters, wealth is what they were born into. Wealth is what they know, and they honestly like you take you take their money and it it impacts them far more heavily mm-hmm. so i i love the fact that he's like <laughs> i'm a priest of the moon i can kick your ass either way the the money never held sway over my decisions i'm like mm-hmm. thank you uh it seems like yeah the money doesn't matter to him but also i like that it's another expression of his faith moon knight seems to be really working out his theology in the series and i, I think that's mm-hmm. really good i think that's i think that's what i like he makes a big point of this like uh, no wealthy priest has ever been good but he also makes a big point in this issue about his whole like there's there's this moment where rampage is directing moon knight to do crimes you know or to do work for him in so he doesn't lose his money right mm-hmm. and he he thinks that moon knight is working for him as a tool and he says that specifically he says remember you're a tool a tool does not question its owner a tool is only meant to be used mm-hmm. and you can like almost hear the gears turning in moon knight's mind thinking about his god and how he was just a tool of his god and it turned him against the avengers and he broke out from under his god and decided that he would just continue the mission on his own even if even if Kanshu was no longer with the mission itself he thinks the mission is bigger than the god and i think that's like incredibly rad that's so cool it's a, it's a religious position that i find myself often agreeing with and it's it's just a sincere expression of his faith is that he's saying like i am not just a tool that's absolutely not what i am i'm the fist of Kanshu, and that's more than Kanshu. his his faith is all that matters to him in the series and it's very interesting to see what his faith is and how it plays out and his faith does seem to be literally just like helping out poor people from vampire attacks and i like i like that 
<laughs> Isn't it, it? It's it's really cool. It's it's such a real world thing done in a superhero way, right? Because like, yeah, he actually met his god, and he realized his god was not what his god, what he thought his god was. But it, it, it's such a real world thing when you're dealing with faith to realize that at some point, some people realize that the way they were brought up and the religion isn't isn't all that they thought it was and they start to see it in different lights and just to see it explored through these superhero thematics it's it's really refreshing because it questioning a faith is something that a lot of people go through and it's so cool to actually see it happen this book really reminds me of that exploration of the faith especially like in the song i've been listening to lately a lot dear god by ecstasy these people really questioning everything that they were taught and everything that they thought they knew and that's exactly what's going on in mark's mind and moon knight's mind right now there's so much here that i want to talk about but i don't know how to talk about but with the the exploration of mark's identity because i like that it, it this issue doesn't really make it ever about his did this whole series doesn't it like it acknowledges that he has it and that it's a part of his life uh it's part of who he is and but like most of it is about more mundane questions of identity like him regressing around tigra to like the man he was in the west coast avengers because he just doesn't have any other option that was such a playful and fun scene extremely funny to see reese interacting with tigra i know raven was talking to me earlier about how like <laughs> we heard reese is a teenager and we're like really is she wait is she i i must have forgotten from first step issue but like she seems like definitely in her mid-20s right that's exactly what i thought i was like wait reese is a teenager hold on <laughs> i was like she's so fucking mature but like okay i guess she's a vampire you get a little broody and stuff like that interaction was so cute like i loved how tigro was able to bring out that fun side of not just moon knight but of reese who we didn't get to see a lot of that fun side of like god tigra's just such a fun character and she brings that out and everybody mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. i think she looks really cool in this issue i love this design for tigra i i love i love the new suit i love yes. the suit that she's wearing it this fits so wonderfully like i really really enjoyed her new suit because it it still very much fits her aesthetic and everything but it's not that tiny bikini with with fangs all over the place that just felt so friggin dated i'm, yeah. I'm loving i'm loving this new look but they very much kept the essence of who she was, not just aesthetic wise, but in the way she interacts. Like she is kind of high energy and, you know, very gregarious and, you know, likes to get to know people really quickly, sometimes steps over <laughs> personal boundary lines and whatnot. She's but she's very a very, yeah, totally. yeah. And she wraps very... her tail around Mark when she's comforting him. It's, it's, right. adorable. Oh my God. but yeah, but that's her. She's very, she's very earnest. She's very um, forthright and, she wants she wants to know what's going on with her friend because yes they did spend a number of years together in west coast avengers and you know they got to know each other well as friends so it's great to see them sitting together on a rooftop you know talking about everything going on and whatnot and he's going through a lot and she's like i can totally relate because i'm kind of going through that as well and if you just want to sit and talk all night that's cool let's let's do that let's be human let's just you know let's talk about everything that's going on because honestly you need to talk and it's clear yeah and oh, i loved that for her because he was finally able to open up as a person instead of being a hero or a vigilante or a masked individual he or opened priest. up to her as <laughs> an it, right not not even as a priest of the moon he opened up to her 
as an actual person and as her friend. And yes. that spoke volumes. I thought that was so emotionally cathartic. I, I didn't know I needed this issue for Mark, but I did. Like as somebody who absolutely can often take themselves way too seriously and get stuck in these like grim moods. It's so good to have a friend like that who comes in and just reminds you that like, hey, it's maybe not all that serious sometimes, you know, just kind of like let's just talk it out it's okay one thing that i did not like about this issue was the when he reveals his face and like takes off his mask Mm. the art for his face i am not the biggest fan of i like the art Mm. throughout the entire issue except for that panel what did you what did you dislike about it is it the scene bangs no, it's the eyes for me. Mm. I think the they're too like the the line work is too thick. And it, okay, it, okay. Um, I uh, had never seen his face before, so this is this is my first time seeing Moon Knight's face, and I was just like, I just think he got done being in like an emo band recently. <laughs> Heavy guy. Yeah, that's what it, it looks like. He's wearing eyeliner, which that's cool. There's nothing hey, wrong with that. I mean, he is the Moon Knight, so having like when <laughs> why do I know this much about masks? Uh, when you're dealing with changes in light, especially at nighttime, um, one of the ways to reduce glare, like what footballers do, is they put that heavy coal right under the eye to absorb light, mm. so you don't get quite so shocked in the face, but. Yeah, I can see what you mean. It would have been nice to see a little bit more of his eye. His eye comes off very wolfen in ways, whereas I'd like to, yeah, see a bit more of his face so that I could get more of a read off of it. But also, I'm just looking at the massive amounts of damage. I'm like, how do you, how can you ever take off your mask and walk through normal society and not have people take a double look with the amount of scarring that he has on his face? Uh, totally. That is, yeah. um, like, he d- he says in that, in that panel, like, I, so I don't have to look myself in the face. And it's interesting because it's also probably at least a little bit so that other people don't have to look at him in the face (laughs) Mm. and see the physical reflection of the trauma he's been inflicting on himself and like the punishing he's doing. Mm. Because he is punishing himself. Also, I, I have to agree, Drew, the, the art on that panel was jarring for me, but it was because his head is so, like, realistic and detailed. But his cloak yeah. and costume are still, like, the Moon Knight, oh. like, stylized mm-hmm. noir, only black and white, no other shades. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know what it is that I, like, it's his, it's his, just his, like, it's something about his eye that is just, like, weirding me out. And it, like, doesn't, it doesn't. It, that wolf and eye. Yeah, it, like, looks like it's, like, a full eye, but it's not a full eye. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, it's, yeah. like, cut, like, it was drawn full and then just like erased mm. if i if i can contrast uh my favorite panel in this end page in this was another splash page and it was the one of moon knight on a table with the moon filtering into the club when he goes to oh, take yeah. down yeah uh, that was mm. just it's just such a simple thing but it's like every time i see him just like absolutely shining in the moon night in the moonlight <laughs> it is extremely cool i love the the greenish tints that they add in the, in the colors just to like really pop that white out even more when the moonlight hits i'm like oh my god yeah rochelle rosenberg is doing a great job with it. it's just like every scene is one or two key colors like the blue of uh rampage's lair or the like the grimy green orange and white backgrounds of the city streets mm-hmm. yeah did either of you have like a favorite page or a favorite piece of the art where this shined or something you'd like to criticize my favorite scene is the whole scene between tigra and mark but like mm-hmm. i love in page 19 of digital when mark says you know everybody thinks that a new day begins when the sun comes up but that's not true right now is the new day when the new day has to fight through the darkness to earn its light so like that is just like such a a beautiful fucking like sentiment right there and i just i love i love how that is put 
it is it is very beautiful. He's getting waxing poetic, and it's uh, you can obviously he's talking about himself, you know? right? As always, as <laughs> always, self absorbed, and I understand like that. It's easy to get like that when you're really down on the dumps and you're punching yourself for things you think you've done and things you have done. In Mark's case, who can't get stuck in those kind of moments where you're just like, holy shit, like I got to fight my way out of this darkness. It is a mood and a half. Mm-hmm. For me, I I really loved the interactions between Mark and Greer because you could see that yes, they were old friends, but like around her, he could be far more human. And I love that they did it without trying to force sexual tension into that relationship because yes. they've always been good friends. And I love that they were able to keep that energy where when you see him open up, it isn't because oh, pretty girl, let me try and you know get with it it was the damn it this is my friend and she's been through a lot of the same shit i have i i feel safe enough to actually open up and and, yes you know be human and he he needs that he so desperately needs somebody he can actually talk to not just a shrink oh yeah no let's let's talk about my problems Uh i wear it because justice (laughs) i adore it yeah it's beautiful it makes him so much more human makes him so much easier to connect to and connect with because i think a lot of us have been through some really shitty trauma where we've decided to kind of put on a facade or a mask so that we look like or or seem to come off as somebody else but like when you're finally able to just be with your friends and just kind of confront your own trauma it's it's very cathartic it's very humanizing and it's something that he especially desperately needs i love the platonic friendship in Mm -hmm. this issue especially because like going with the further batman allegations here <laughs> like she's the Catwoman to moon knight's batman uh oh, yeah. without that but without that like whole we can bond over our sex on the rooftops thing like nothing against mm-hmm. that there's nothing wrong with the bat and the cat please don't take this the wrong way <laughs> listeners but like i love that his version of it is hanging out with the Catwoman on the roof and just like talking about like man it's been a rough rough bunch of years it did some crazy things carved some moons into people's faces fought the avengers you know but <laughs> how are you doing <laughs> It would be, yeah, it would be nice to see her be kind of like a semi-regular character in this series as like that kind of, you know, friend to like almost like a second, you know, friend therapist kind of a deal. What? A bestie? Yes. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, I think Jed McKay did say on Twitter that she is going to keep continuing to appear in the series. So I was like, yes! Tiger's the perfect character for it because she did have the rapport with him before and she hasn't been a part of the Avengers enough recently to to have that anger over the, the whole Kanchu saga that just happened. So... Like, it's just perfect. Perfect choice. I don't even think she would get, her, like, really tore up about that. <laughs> no. It seems extremely chill. She's done wear cat stuff that she didn't really have control over, too, so she would understand also at the same th- time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it's good to see that Mark still has friends who are there for him, even when he's, you know, like, done some pretty nasty things lately. But they, I think that Tiger will understand that he was not in his right mind and that sometimes you have to make allowances. But... Also, the Avengers are fine. I'm just saying. They're okay. Totally fine. Are they? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> are they cops? I would have liked more SFX in this issue. I, I noticed there's literally no sound effects in this issue besides the beeps from Rampage deleting the millions, which is probably a choice. But just after the great baseball bat clonks in the last issue, yes. I kind of missed it. 
I love some good aspects. True. Although I think in a way, I think it was purposeful. There was a lot of, I think there was a lot of talking that needed to be done and processed. Mm -hmm. And then I think there was also a lot of, of quiet introspection that needed to be felt. So if you don't have sound effects to kind of distract or, or add something else to look at, you have to sit with those words and they have to sink in and be digested and resonate. And that way, all you're hearing is, you know, Rampage talking over the phone and that just that dead silence in between. It 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 ha- it adds power, I think, to the words that are being said. I like that but, take. But I, but I get where you're coming from. Oh, no, I like that take. I think that's really interesting. There's a lot to be said for the silence of the night. Mm-hmm. This was a very quiet issue. I don't want to say not a lot happened because it, like a lot did happen. One thing I really liked about this series is kind of like the themes that we've talked to, you know, talked about um, throughout, you know, of him questioning his religion. I did like one thing, which I, I don't think I brought up earlier, which is that there's a sense of timing in this issue that mm-hmm. is easy to miss. But if you're paying attention, you know, everything in this issue takes place over the course of six hours and it's it's very tight and it's very well paced. Like, you know, we start with him waking up out of his goddamn coffin like it's a sarcophagus, but he's a fucking vampire at the at night at 6 p.m and then in the background of his therapist session it's seven by eight o'clock rampage is already calling him on his wristwatch and then you know like later on we see him flying through the streets at like 10 past 11 or 10 past 10 and then the final wrap-up of him laughing and joking about owl moon owl noon midnight god i can't stop saying moon but it's it's a really tight sense of time and pacing, and I really appreciate that. That's something that gets lost a lot in superhero comics, and it's very cool. This is just one quiet evening with Moon Knight and friends and enemies. Honestly, this issue kind of... Uh swayed me into wanting to go back and grab the first couple of issues and continue picking it up and and reading this because it it feels like there's going to be a lot more um, introspection and a lot more development of Mark as a person. And that's honestly what I've been waiting for with Moon Knight. I sometimes like books that are a little bit more, you know, psychological or a little bit more interpersonal driven. I think you're going to like this book then. Right? I like getting to know people and like actually giving a damn about them. And this really did it for me. So I'm like, I think I'll be picking this up. This is going to pull this. So yeah. Yeah, that's what I mean. It's almost, it's like a psychological thriller. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. One thing I will have a critique about to this series is that it is kind of so far, I know we're only four issues in a little like villain of the week. Mm. Like every issue has just had like, you know, a single villain. Just wants to know what you guys thought about that. I absolutely hear you. And you're right. It's only four issues in. I personally, I feel like a lot of comics have to start that way where they set up new villains, enemies right at the beginning and then give it breathing room. Mm -hmm. Probably my my favorite example of that in recent memory was like X-Men by Jonathan Hickman. Mm -hmm. So I do expect that the series will maybe progress into like more of an arc quite soon. But it's interesting that you note that because we'll have to keep an eye out for that. Although I personally am not a person who hates Villain of the Week arcs. I loved the X-Files. So... (laughs) (laughs) absolutely okay with that happening for me but i like that there's this through line of psychological development and as you said i'd like to see more like returning foes 
I do love episodic storytelling. I really do like, and I love serialized storytelling too. And I like it. This series does seem to be trying to combine those with like one. Yes, the the villains of the week are very episodic, but the real serialized storytelling is Mark's personal development and his psychological well-being. And I, I love that theme being carried through. I love the relationships that are ongoing, especially with Reese and hopefully now Tigra continues and they continue to grow relationships as well. So like the villain of the week sort of feel doesn't bother me as much because we are getting we're getting both episodic and serialized storytelling at the same time yep yeah i really like the series so raven i'm glad you're picking it up yes it's it's definitely been one of my favorite comics to talk about week to week on this show it's just right up my alley and i i hope that it continues to be really cool i do hope that along the veins of drew's comments i i hope that it develops more into like a full arc although like i'm i'm not gonna say it's not already i i think that there's a lot there and i think that it's it's definitely an exploration of what mark's faith looks like in the wake of the the age of Kanchu. it's it's a little weird that this comic is so dependent on like that that, but also it can be dependent on any past past series right it, it mm-hmm. makes callbacks to making bad choices which i think is maybe mm-hmm. like a subtle dig at how some of the more recent series have not been so great mm-hmm. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. I, i'm not gonna put words in jed mckay's mouth uh, but <laughs> it it definitely uh read like that to me and i i got a kick out of that and i think that mark has a lot to atone for in his life or at least he feels like he does and mm-hmm. it'll be interesting seeing how how he comes to terms with that emotionally especially if he's got friends in his life again it's gotta let people in yep yeah you should call up like i don't know any old any other friend does he have other friends <laughs> it's like the, mid, well, the midnight suns ah yes that, that yeah. makes sense. well and, and honestly uh we could since they kept you know talking about you know things that have gone wrong i mean they could always bring echo back in because oh. some of his some, some of his actions um directly uh played into uh the her phoenix, death yeah oh you're yeah. talking about before but now now even with the phoenix like the mm-hmm. age of Kanchu tied into the uh uh, phoenix battle so yeah mm-hmm. yes absolutely yeah i'd like to see that that'd be that'd be pretty cool i didn't even think about that because man reading moon knight feels like it's off in its own little world i don't know if you guys yeah. agree but... yes yeah. yeah yeah it does it really, and, really does and like you could you could really go into that with the question of like the phoenix and religion and and like and that kind of aspect of it yeah i'd be honestly happy to see that Today, we're talking about Moon Knight number five by Jed McKay, Alessandro Capuccio, Rochelle Rosenberg, and VCs Corey Pettit on words, art, colors, and letters, respectively. This issue is called Horoscope, connections that I did not make because I don't ever read my horoscopes. Does anybody with some astrology want to talk about their feelings about this issue? I found it rather interesting, although I completely missed the name and it didn't seem like it was overly... um important to the plot line yeah i could the, the last one made a little bit more sense to me but this one is a mm-hmm. little confusing yeah this one was kind of like a bag pick you know i don't know what to call this one so i'll just pick the, the name out of a bag <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah and you know what sometimes you do that i'm not saying jed did that sometimes no. you do that though sometimes yes. i do that sometimes mm-hmm. i do that also so we open this issue as we always do with a therapy session. Uh, although this time we start cutting back and forth between the therapy and the aftermath. And I thought it was very funny that we start off with Andrew Sturman saying, uh, oh, you haven't been honest with me, Mark, and disrupting his concentration on his uh, little pyramid of cards. And uh, also the pyramid imagery, very funny, always. And then cutting immediately to him looking like 
fucking like bloody hell, extremely angry, upset, ready to kick some ass with his face completely in shadow, even though he's glowing. What do y'all think about the the therapy in this particular issue today? I mean, that's a very general question, but I just want to kind of get some general impressions. Nathan? All of the therapy sessions in the series so far have been amazing. This obviously, this therapy session obviously is a little bit more important to the whole plot of the book, whereas before, you know, it was sort of like just a, a cool thing to kind of get into his mind a little bit. I did love the imagery of the, the pyramids of cards collapsing because that's sort of what the doctor is trying to have Mark do, just collapse that big house of cards that he built for himself. So like that imagery right there was just like, oh, spot on. The big thing I loved about this book was him in the therapy session talking about his Jewish identity and what that means and what it meant to take on an Egyptian god being the hand of Khonshu and like what that meant to his identity as a person and his identity as a person of faith. Yeah, his his extreme guilt in this issue over his abandonment of his faith and the violence that embodies his his lifestyle as opposed to that of his rabbi father is like such an such a cool tension. I've been hoping that something would come up about exploring the tension between his Jewish history and his new Egyptian master. That is super interesting and I don't think I've ever seen that addressed, but I'm not super deep on Moon Knight. Raven, how did you feel about this uh, session? I really liked it because she didn't just seem like a lip service therapist. She actually seemed like she was, you know, taking taking notes, actually doing her job. Yeah. Surprise, no, shock, what? <laughs> she didn't just kind of pussyfoot around and she tried to give him enough room that he could open up and do it on his own. And when he was like, yeah, I'm just going to be over here, you know, stacking cards and deflecting and not answering the question, she she pushed him. She didn't she didn't just let it slide because, you know, they've been in for a couple of sessions now. And she's like, look, the entirety of of your contract with the Avengers is you go to therapy and you actually work on yourself. So you've been giving me, you know, very tiny little, you know, just no, no substance answers, answers that you think will fulfill the brief, but you haven't actually addressed what's going on. So. Oh. Yeah, it's all like he's giving very surface level answers that like, you, you know, like if we're talking, if this was like for school, you know, he'd be like just pa- just passing, you know, like C, C student. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. Like just skimming by, you know, like um, whereas like she really wants him to like dig deep and, you know, get at the answers. I like that she won't just accept the surface answers because these are the kind of things I would say. I'm reading this and I'm like, I'm just embarrassed because <laughs> when he's like unhappy. <laughs> Why should I be happy, Dr. Sturman? When has happiness ever mattered to the fist of Kanshu? I don't have happiness. I have my duty. I have my debt. And he's just talking like what he thinks, like, as, as she says, a, vi- a character from a video game sounds like. And she's just like, give me that bullshit. Come on. <laughs> I laughed so hard at that because I'm like, who are you, Batman? Come on. And then she like, she's like, look, you're not a character from a video game. I'm like, thank you. You called it. I like that she said you're not a character from a video game, but I wish she had just been like, look, look you're not Daredevil. You don't need to bullshit around the world. <laughs> They know Daredevil in this universe, and that would have been hysterical. Oh my god, yes. Yeah, the the heavy guilt is such a is a is a great theme in this, and I love that it's not it's not the normal kind of necessarily religious guilt. It's him just saying like I love violence; it has become a part of me, and I hate that that's I hate that that's who I am. I hate that that's who I am now, and who I keep choosing to be because I never had the strength to not be violent. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Intercut with our therapy session, we also get some shocking reveals, twists and turns as to who's been really fucking with Moon Knight. What did you all think about that? I thought this was astonishing when we first find out that Soldier is Hydra. And then the incredible twist reveal that 
Soldier wasn't even the problem all along. I pegged it when I saw him. Like, it, 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 yeah, and it, there wasn't any give or tell that you would get, like, you know, like that slightly creepy smile or anything like that. It was his willingness to help, even though he was quote unquote scared out of his mind, and his kind of knowledge of some of the tech stuff. Like, he seemed to know where everything was kind of set up. And I'm like, oh my God, you're the problem. Yeah, yeah. And I was absolutely. like, it was a good setup. Like, if you, <laughs> if you know what to look for, you might spot it. But yeah, it's like, oh. Oh, oh, you're the freaking problem. You, you, you SOB. I didn't pick up on it at all, but that's because I was just getting like, like, I felt like I was getting tricked over and over and over in this issue. Not only the, the Hydra reveal and then the idea that he's ex-Hydra, but then like at the end you see Terry's the villain and I was like, oh, is he like Arcade Jr.? <laughs> and they're like, no, I thought that. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Like oh, that. That's what I thought. I thought it was arcade. <laughs> He's also arcade junior because it's because of the red yeah. hair and the manic eyes. Hair. Um, the red hair and the face but, but one what? thing that i wanted to go through was i had mentioned this idea of like the series being villain of the week and i feel like this was like we're still on that kind of trend of it being villain of the week like the overall story i need more from it like yeah so like i would say but like this this issue itself like to me kind of proved that there was a little bit more of a master plan in place than just villain of the week especially since terry had been there since the beginning like yeah obviously Obviously, like, you know, he's the villain now and he's probably going to be, I would imagine, be one of the main driving villains going forward in the series. Subterfuge of, you know, a soldier of the villain. Like, you know, it, it was like this really tied back all of the other issues for me and it made it a little less villain of the week and a little bit more like, hey, cool, we're actually going to get to a little bit of the cross and find out what's going on here. It worked so well in that way. I had no idea Terry would be the villain until uh, the only time I had an inkling before the actual reveal itself was like when he found soldier like i was i was like yep soldiers it it's fine we got it bam i didn't i did not expect that twist there but when we got that twist i was like oh it must have been terry that on the because i was like why did terry send him after soldier if it wasn't soldier oh terry that was the only time i had any clue that terry was going to turn out to be the zodiac the big driving force i'm a dumbass i literally just said i didn't know about the horoscope but that's why it's because he's the zodiac yeah Oh my god. Just while you were talking about it, I just literally just realized I was like, of course, it's because it's a premonition of the Zodiac. Jesus. No, but that but isn't isn't that why we do the show, right? Because so like it helps us kind of discover more about the books themselves. So like, hey, cool, you know, I bet you there's gonna be somebody out there listening who's like, Why the fuck is this called a horoscope? And then put it together at the same time. So <laughs> Yeah, it's nice that at the very last page that comes clear. This isn't the Zodiac cartel that I'm more familiar with because I read a lot of Jerry Conway. What do you guys think about this villain? Is this, is this a uh, is this a legacy villain that we've seen before taking up the mantle of like the Zodiac key or is this because he's wearing a lock around his neck or is this like an unrelated thing do you think this is like a completely new type of villain he might be a little bit of a legacy but I don't think he's going to be like like direct I'm not going to say direct rip but like he's not going to be directly like oh yes I am the son of blah 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 and this is vengeance for my father or some shit yeah I, would hope <laughs> no. I, I, I don't think this book really plays like that um I think it it might be more that this that Terry was like inspired by something that they did and so they sort of took up this half mantle or this you know this partial persona that is kind of uh, hearkened to but still very much its own thing. So we do now finally, I know it's another villain of the week, Drew, but at least we now have an arch nemesis or at least somebody who's been pulling stuff together. 
I don't, I don't, I don't it really understand. Me the Zodiac about. Killer, the Zodiac outfit, it reminds me very reminiscent of the Zodiac Killer. Very updated look to what you're talking about there. Yeah. You've got the, the face cover. It, yeah. Okay. I can see what you're saying. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Interesting. Interesting. I really love the, the black ink splatter of the name. I thought that was uh, an all out job by Corey Pettit on Zodiac. Just going broke. Marvel seems to be letting the letterers have a lot more fun lately. Or maybe it's just because I actually understand the structure of comics a lot more now that when you're getting into comics, who, who really knows what a letter is, right? But like once you start to know, you get to realize how important their role is and how important their SFX are to the books themselves. And it's just... I love I love noticing this and I love seeing how much fun they get to have. I agree. And as much as I've complained recently in the past about how little sound effects we're getting after the, the delightful clonks of earlier issues, I think Corey Pettit is just doing a, a restrained job so that when he does like the big full page boom of the explosion or the gross inky zodiac that it stands out a lot better. Speaking of the lettering, I want to talk about the art. Yes. I always like asking people if they had a favorite page. I'm just going to go ahead and say it. Mine is the one where he's like, Reese, please get out of the mission. Call Tigra. And he's swooping through New York City right in front of uh, the Chrysler building. I don't know New York City stuff, but it's like a full page spread of him looking incredible with the moon just behind him. And the colors are absolutely awash with like nightlife and city streets. And they're a little glinty. And I, I think that's just like incredible. Cabuccio is just knocking out of the park. Rosenberg inseparable from this art yeah yeah like the way especially the way that moon was drawn on that page with the light shattering it really gave you that that big feel of a actual moon god like you know Kanchu like actually being a powerful force up there with the phoenix force itself i refuse to pick one page (laughs) so your favorite is all of it yes yes like because each section is very much its own thing and it's great because you don't get the different scenes twisted even when he's wearing the same outfit when he's wearing the mr knight outfit in the therapist's office and when he's mr knight talking to terry he's wearing the same thing but you can feel the difference in the rooms without even having to see like the hieroglyphics or the sarcophagus or anything like that you can feel the difference of where he is and what's going on i just love this entire (laughs) comic book i could devour it all day and all night and just the artwork is beautiful the line work is so well done and then the colors just make it pop so i am just (laughs) i'm smitten with this book i really really enjoy it yeah i agree it's hard to because another thing that i really love is page 13 of digital like just like the whole page itself where he's talking to where moon knight's talking to a soldier's mom like and just just the absurdity of how real and normal her and her kitchen are and then you've got moon knight in his just like so white it's like green outfit and then when you just juxtapose that with his like fucking phone which is just like it seems to be getting more and more cracked each issue which is an amazing thing like i'm just like it's really hard to pick out a total favorite but everything is spot on art why i mean everything's spot on all the way around with this book to me like i couldn't i don't think i'd be really pressed to find something i didn't like about this one of my favorite panels is right after the therapy session and then it goes into like right after he sees what's his name's mom um terry terry's yeah no yeah oh, so, i'm sorry yeah uh-huh 
Um, and he's just like chilling on the rooftop and his thought uh, bubble says it's because I don't have anything else left. I'm not the fist of Khonshu, whatever I choose to understand that as. Then I'm just Mark Spector, the man who makes the wrong choice every time. But like that first panel where it just says it's because I don't have anything left. I just like the way, you know, I'm a sucker for a good cake moment, you know, and it, just like the way, again, it's it's similar to that one you pointed out, uh, Steve, of like, you know, you see the city behind him with like the glowing lights. Yes. Um, and that moon is in the background but i just really like on this one i really like the cape and how it's like blowing in the wind yeah i love the crescent arc of the cape and that impossible mm-hmm. crescent of the moon behind him I, you were talking about the scene right as i was reading it again because uh, mm-hmm. i just I, I keep rereading these lines over and over again with his just like if i'm not moon knight then i'm just mark specter the man who makes the wrong choice every time the man who can't breathe from the guilt closing over his head thick as seawater and twice as bitter <laughs> this is good shit I want to draw attention to this the page with the breaking of the chain because I actually thought this was like one of the most suspenseful comics I've read in a long time. Like it was only ever going to go one way and I think there's a, there's a subtle there's a subtle bit there with him saving the life of this ex-Hydra guy when Hydra of course have Nazi ties originally and him not choosing violence for once in his life. But I don't think it was I don't think we ever were supposed to think that he was going to leave Soldier to die. But like him breaking the chain takes place over these like really wide narrow panels over an entire page and i honestly i any other any other action comic i think would not have spent time on this would not have spent an entire page doing this with tick tock tick tock i felt like it went on much longer than i would have ever expected and for it to to end the way it did with the explosion was just like i don't know it hit it hit home it was very good it was the bomb under the table it worked very well yeah if this was in a movie that this part would all be in like slow-mo yeah totally. I said, like, I was, cut through every yeah, single like, panel obviously mark wasn't going to leave the soldier to you know just die right that's the whole point of the series right it's just to for Mark to be able to show how far he's come, he's not that same character anymore who's just gonna go out and go out and kill randomly, go out and carve crescent moons in villains' minds because the weight of everything he's done in the past has, has really gotten to him. It would have been interesting if he hadn't been able to save the soldier after trying because it would have just added more to that guilt avalanche that he is just drowning under right now. I like seeing him get to succeed in that because it kind of gets to show us that you know, maybe not everything is as hopeless and you don't have to drown in guilt yeah like you like you want to as opposed to a lot of other comic series that just focus so hard on the guilt and the self-punishment and the you know like i deserve this things should be bad let's always make peter parker have a bad time forever um i like that the series is like no rehabilitation is possible like you can you can make another choice you can always start over and it's giving moon knight chances to do that again and again uh, in ways that he obviously doesn't feel like he deserves but he's he's taking those chances yeah absolutely uh, honestly i think that was <laughs> a i love the pacing it worked so well it stretched the time it added to the tension it was wonderfully done and also i that during that time my brain kept trying to guess at what the deus ex machina was going to be like is reese going to turn around and she you know pops up and with her vampire strength or powers whatever you know she's able to like break the chain and like save the both of them or is tiger going to pop in and like somehow help save the day and no it came down to mark and his decisions and it was so great because it could have gone any one of those ways but honestly it went the way that it needed to 
to go because Mark needed this this choice. He needed this situation in order to see that he is more than just the man who always picks the wrong decision or who does the wrong thing that is only violence based. So I loved it. Beautifully done. It's got me really wanting this really strong redemption arc. And yes, Moon Knight can never be accepted by the general superhero community at large because of what happened during that arc right before Enter the Phoenix. This is that time he put his boot on the neck of the world, you know. (laughs) (laughs) Who among us hasn't done that as a superhero? I want Moon Knight to be able to come out of the series and you're never going to be totally healed. You're never going to be totally fully what you were before. But I I want him to come out of this and at least not be browning in the guilt as much and i i love that he's got you know he's got therapy and now he's got tigra to help him out too and even though we didn't see her in this issue like we know that she's still there because he's saying you know reese call tigra like you know get some help i love that he's got reese who is gonna stand up to him a little and not really take his shit so like he's got people he's building a support system to help himself dig out of the guilt that he's been yeah he no longer needs to necessarily rely on just himself and his alters and that's super cool also i this whole issue honestly him talking about his like past faith and his current faith and the conflict between them and the difference between him and his father like i understand moon knight so much better than i ever have just from reading this one issue just him talking when he when he's just like can you blame me for accepting Kanchu? i put aside a god who'd let terrible things happen to his people a god who i had never seen never heard in favor of a god who spoke to me right and promised me you know we will get things done and then transforming that into it was just a way for me to continue my violence you know it was it was a way for me to not be weak it was a way for me to further indulge myself and i'm still doing it you know i don't know there's so much there and i've i've never really gotten moon knight in in exactly this way until just now uh, honestly <laughs> like i've i've read a, a decent amount of moon knight because i was reading up on echo and she appeared in his volume i think it was volume six run and yeah it's like i i've read a decent amount of him plus you know west coast avengers all that kind of stuff way back in the day but to to get this wonderful exposition where he actually explores himself and and what he is not happy with and the thing that has caused conflict in his life that was so good that was so wonderfully uh needed and gave me such um a better understanding of of his self-torment because i'm like why is he like he (laughs) he is uh, and I'm, not that I am making the direct comparison, but he is he is very comparable to some of the other kind of broody, dark, rich people that we know in comic lore. And I'm just like, why, dude? What is your actual motivating factor other than I was a soldier in the desert and I almost died. And then somebody like gave me a lifeline. And so I just took it. And I'm like, OK, well, what are you beyond that? What actually drives your 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 self-loathing, your your self-deprecation what drives that what fuels that extreme toxicity to yourself and when he when he went through that he's like my father was like the most peaceful man he was an absolute pacifist he was kind he never raised his hand to me in anger i'm like what you had a functional parent who wasn't an a-hole and not only that but he thinks he's weak like that's that that part hurt me he's like he was the best man in my life and i thought he was weak Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. a weak man serving an indifferent god i was just like 
holy shit. This is yeah. nice because it steps Moon Knight, as you said, outside of the really like shallow and hyper masculine template for this kind of character. You know, the 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 Daredevil, the Batman, the guy who beats people up at night for out of a sense of his own guilt and then takes it out on unsuspecting criminals. But it takes a step outside of that, and it it talks about his self loathing and how, his hatred of the person that he is and his desire to maybe be something more. And I think that that's really important because it creates like a very like a distinction between him and those other characters that you know it can get like a little repetitive or become marvel's version of whoever you know what i mean and and i just find that those characters are very like one-dimensional and kind of boring because you can honestly really tell that it's a copy and it's just not as interesting as the original batman doesn't want to get better he specifically never wants to get better he never will he said it a million times and i have my doubts about daredevil but but moon knight is a is a person who is actually listening to people also so glad he has a therapist who is smarter than him you know because like every other superhero is, is apparently has a therapist who is not as smart as them and is like this is the only therapist i've ever seen in comics who's like all right yeah that's fine superhero bullshit but like tell me how you really feel (laughs) i uh i love the fact that his therapist actually does seem to have a phd whereas other therapists it it feels it honestly feels sometimes like like these other anytime you meet a therapist the the protagonist of the book already has a phd and an advanced degree that is you know far outshining the counselor that they are talking to I'm just like, could could you please just have somebody who's competent? And she is not only competent, she she sees straight through the bullshit and will push to get an answer when needed. I love I love the fact that they actually are doing that. And it's not the, oh my god, I love this character specifically. I love the fact that they have made a character who is competent at what they do instead of being bumbling so that the protagonist looks better by comparison. Yeah. Oh my god, I just, uh, I hadn't done this yet, but I had to look up Andreas Sturman, his uh, psychiatrist, because I was like, the name is a little too close to Andreas Drucker, and I'd be really, really pissed if this turns out to be Fenris. That would just, like, really upset me. So I, I looked up the character, and it turns out this is actually a character who has existed since, like, 1990, uh, and is a Nomad character, like a supporting character of Nomad, who wrote a book about Nomad and, like, was part of the B Battalion at some point. So that's completely wild. Wait, I can't wait, to, can't wait to read the Jack Monroe series and figure out where she comes from, but... Oh, that's my God. Holy shit. Point. Wow, she was on the Commission of Superhero Activities? Wow. Yeah, uh, very, very strange. But I, okay. it seems she has I, credentials. I need to read all Wow, and she was taken in by V Battalion. Wow. Okay. Wow. Yeah. That's okay. That's a lot. Wild. Wow. Holy yeah, fuck. I, if we're doing nomad stuff, and if Zodiac here has any connection to the Zodiac cartel, I'm like, man, are we gonna get into some like crazy Captain America stuff going on with this? I, I'm kind of excited. I mean, I am very excited, but I'm kind of excited for it to be weirdly like the strange marginalia of Captain America based. Like, that's always the most fascinating stuff about Captain America is that strange, like, you know, really tangential Captain America stuff. Like, oh, so sign me up. Yep, D-Man. I hope D-Man shows up in the series. Honestly, it would be incredible. I don't think they've seen each other since Heroes Return Avengers number one. Oh, D-Man. Oh my god, yes, I would love D-Man. Like, did anybody read that Lockjaw miniseries? I have not read a Lockjaw series. That sounds pretty interesting. Okay, because it was really, like, I don't know why it's called a Lockjaw series. It was really D-Man featuring Lockjaw. Like, oh, because oh, D-Man can't star like, in I his just, own title. <laughs> oh, poor guy. I guess. Yeah, you're right. You're right. I poor, feel so poor bad Lockjaw. I mean, like, 
oh like everybody should go and read it that was like the most amazing miniseries ever like i fell madly in love with d-man after that like i need him showing oh, every day so like yeah yeah i'm definitely gonna i'm gonna read it i'm always i've always been a big fan about how steve rogers is just like this and this is my friend d-man you know you guys all remember d-man so i actually do like this series but i probably am gonna drop it just because i do have marvel unlimited and i feel like i could just wait for it like i don't like it enough to be buying it on a monthly basis okay see and i just got sucked into it i just i picked up issue four and just i was like (laughs) like this is the most compelling run that i've read of moon knight so i honestly think i'll be picking this up uh, on a monthly basis because it it has kind of the psychological that i like it also has really good pacing beautiful art so yeah i think this this is definitely a book that was made for me yeah i uh i enjoyed it much the same way i think when i first read it i was just like oh cool let me get to know moon knight a little bit and see if i like the series and that first issue and every other issue i've just i've been so constantly even more excited for this book to come out i know i was like oh tigra but like even even that wasn't my isn't my favorite thing about this run it's just how well it really portrays it feels like more of a real person person kind of thing trying to battle their way out of guilt i I really want to see i want to see the growth from mark doctor i want i want moon knight to come out of this and and like i said you're never totally healed after especially all the trauma that he's gone through but i want to see him come through it and be more of a fully realized person who isn't just totally drowning in his guilt who has more sides to it and i know that when you're going through that and you're in that period that that's all you can focus on but i want to see him grow and as he's continuing to do and to try to rely on people and not push everybody away. And that's, that's really what I'm looking for for this series, and that's what really got me compelled in. That's why I don't mind the villain of the week kind of feel to it, because I think the overall driving arc of the story is Mark, is uh, growth as a person. Yeah, I com- completely agree. I I picked this up thinking that this would be like, oh, this might be like a, a Daredevil series kind of thing that I would really enjoy. And it's, it's like immediately striking out as something different, and even if the writing wasn't incredibly compelling, and even if it wasn't a really unique look inside of the mind of this extremely conflicted character who's been so many different things and still is so many different people. Uh, the art would have me buying it every week as it is, uh, to be completely honest. It's just, Capuccio is shockingly good. Yeah. Yeah, I would say the colors too for me. <laughs> like the oh, colors, yeah, the, like I've yeah, never colors and the art. Yeah, the colors, the letters, the everything. Yeah, it's just yeah. it's all around. It's just like ah, like like ah, oh, this is so awesome. Yeah, it's a series that I uh, love to be reading. And Drew will let you know if it starts to pick up a little bit more. It's not that I hate it. This series, it's that I don't like it enough to be buying it when I am paying for Marvel Unlimited. Yeah, absolutely no, Fair I completely understand. I've had to drop several series that I really like and just wait for them trade or on marvel unlimited uh i read a lot i read almost all of immortal hulk that way <gasps> oh okay yeah just because it's 50 issues it's a very very good series but i couldn't i couldn't be buying it as it was coming out and also keep up with the x-men as they were doing you know i, I yeah i get it like there's a lot of reasons <laughs> Hey everybody, Nico here one last time. Now, this might be Shang-Chi's finale to their first arc as a creative team on this ongoing title, but it's certainly not the last issue of Shang-Chi we'll be covering, as there is a seventh issue solicited. However, this issue does see the resolution to the Marvel Universe's ceaseless disbelief in Shang-Chi's ability to be a good guy? I don't know. 
But other than the Marvel heroes kind of acting like dicks, this issue was such a great experience. Getting to see Shang-Chi continue to evolve his understanding of not just himself, but the world around him. And I know our team can't wait to hear more. Guys, as always, we love making this show for you every week. So don't forget to like and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever it is you guys get your podcasts. As always, I'm Nico, and you guys can find me over on Twitter and Instagram at NicoAction. That's N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N. Guys, until next time, keep those mutant lights lit, those Krakoan gateways open, and we'll see ya. Hey everybody, welcome back to X's for Podcast, the show where we take a look at comics, mutants, magic, and marvels week after week through their many, I almost said cosmic cubes. You know what, that's what happens when there's a cosmic cube in the book, I guess, uh, through their many monthly appearances. (laughs) That makes me Nico, and you guys can find me on Twitter and Instagram at NicoAction, that's N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N. I'm Kyle, and you can find me on both Twitter and Instagram at Trantis82, that's D-R-A-N-T-I-S-8-2. And I am Jonah, and you can follow me over on Twitter and Instagram at PeakJonah. That's P-E-A-K. And we hope you survive this experience, unlike Takeshi's freedom, because he got arrested. Womp. And, you know, I feel like there was so much buildup to what ultimately became, like, two panels or so. But that, of course, means we're here to talk about Shang-Chi number six, Shang-Chi versus the Marvel Universe finale by Jean Lun Yang and Dai Gruan with colors by Triona Farrell and, of course, letters by VC's Travis Lanham. I want to start with this issue feels... Kyle, you had to be maybe... maybe This had to be a little tricky for you going into it because this is literally what you said you were tired of uh-huh. going into it. Oh. You know, it's it's been the same formula, but this time it feels like we actually made some progress. And I'm concerned with how uh, oblivious Shang-Chi is towards everything. Um, <laughs> this this almost makes it f- him feel a little incompetent as a leader, and it's, it's disappointing. You know, I... Uh... I want to say I think incompetence to extreme, but I feel like it's a reasonable read considering everything. I would personally like to just say blind to the reality of the faults of his family in an effort to solidify his new agenda in an age, blah, blah, blah. But yeah, it's there's this quote from Arturo, where are you? There's this quote from the West Wing where they keep talking about whether or not a character should do something and whether or not it'll make them look one way or another and they say no i think it will make me look old i think it will make me look dotty and i think this makes shang chi look dotty because i feel like he just doesn't want to accept that perhaps perhaps the identity that his family had prior to him would have required more changing than his own identity to fit in with them and it just doesn't feel like the shang chi from the rest of the issue the rest of the issue or even the issues by Alyssa Wong, who, reminder, everybody who's been enjoying our Shang-Chi coverage, in case you haven't heard the miraculous news, Alyssa Wong will be taking on launching an all-new Asian Iron Fist who will have unique abilities for a new Iron Era. Additionally, Marcus II will be leaving Excalibur, for which he has done 22 of the 25 issues, and instead will be moving over to the new Iron Fist series. So please do keep an eye out for Alyssa Wong and... And Marcus 2, an all-Asian creative team launching a new
new non-appropriative Iron Fist in the next couple of months, for which we couldn't be more excited. Jojo, weigh in. How you feel about Shang-Chi and his leadership in the name of being like, oh, no, not my family. Okay, so this issue was probably my singular favorite because I felt like it not only moved the story along in a good way and in a good pace, but it also gave a really good character depth to Shang-Chi, where a lot of this uh, series, we've talked about the idea of tradition versus new ideas. It's a lot of Shang-Chi trying to unlearn the certain things that his father taught him as well as taught the Five Weapon Society, but still applying the one the traditions and teachings that he did learn and internalize that he still practices in a way of a modern era. And this issue really tested the character of Shang-Chi of what does he do? Does he go against the quote-unquote objectively good thing of turning his brother in, or does he align with his family because Takechi technically has a point? Shang-Chi really only gave up the cosmic cube because of two things. One, Cap asked for it, and you know. And two, he wants to be popular. And Three things. One, Cap asked for it. Two, he wants to be popular. But three, I think there was an optics that Shang-Chi realized that if this society he's trying to reform and isn't getting, is having some difficulty reforming the image and is getting pushed back by other heroes, it looks a little mm, suspicious that he would keep the Cosmic Cube, especially because everybody doesn't seem to trust him, apparently. So I get where he's put at an impasse of what does he do? And is it the most difficult choice in the world? Mm, Not in my opinion, but it is still an interesting moral question that Shang-Chi had to make a decision on the spot. And I really liked putting him through that because I think it helps define his character and gives depth to where is he going and what does he truly believe in. And I think the question of what do you truly believe in is a huge element that runs through not just this series, but kind of the narrative of the reformation of Shang-Chi as a character. Shang-Chi as a character under his new creative team really shows a massive transition from everything before this massive relaunch under two centralized writers who can write from the Asian American experience. And I think there's something really important about that honesty. One of my concerns with this book is I don't know that I feel that the rest of the Marvel Universe is treating Shang-Chi as quite unfriendly as he's being treated in his own title. And because of that, I kind of am not sure why this Illuminati meets New Avengers sort of team came to kick Shang-Chi's ass. And it also seemed like a lot of perhaps lethal force in a lot of ways. Anybody else kind of feel like maybe Iron Man using a repulsor on Shang-Chi was kind of like the fuck? Yeah, everything about it was to the extreme. I understand that they are scared of what can happen with the Cosmic Cube, but they... It just it just feels like everybody is jumping to a conclu- to a conclusion without knowing the full story. And I mean, Shang Chi was completely oblivious to this. And but how? I yeah, I I don't know. I I don't know. And once he realizes what's happening, I mean, yeah, I I understand his reaction. Iris understands why they were worried as well. But. Uh, 
I don't know. It just, it just, I feel like he is stuck in a toxic relationship with his family and he's not willing to, he was not willing to admit it until this issue. I guess my questions about this come into play about why does everybody else seem to have a hard time trusting Shang-Chi when he's given no other reasons not to trust what he's trying to do before this? Are there other issues where he was like wavering in alliance or like acting in certain ways or doing something to make him seem untrustworthy? It just feels really weird where everybody says, you know, I really did trust him, but then not really give a specific reason as to why they can't trust him now. I feels like Shang-Chi isn't given that grace or that like leeway into that trust and that, you know, bond that he supposedly had with all these characters that other characters get like I don't think anybody would be saying or acting this way if Tony was trying to do something like this like if Tony was working on this super big project and it turned out that it was morally questionable I don't think anybody would be like breaking into Stark uh, Industries and trying to lethally force him to stop what he's doing it just seems a little weird that we as the audience can see that Shang-Chi is trying to do something good and it's hard and it's not an easy task but the rest of the Marvel comics aren't seeing what the reader is seeing and it feels a little weird because it feels like a lot of this could it could have been solved with some conversations I don't understand why violence was chosen first that has been my concern this entire series they immediately jump to he's gone bad because he is now running the five weapon society and it's frustrating because you see that he is trying to reform them from the inside and nobody is giving him the benefit of the doubt that he's actually trying to make changes. Nico, can I pose a question to you? It's a, kind of a similar idea. If uh, there was a storyline of Electra saying, I'm going to infiltrate the hand and completely reform what it is. So every you... Electra storyline ever. Correct. Does she get the same amount of... No, she gets way worse. But okay. there's context. Let me. I love this conversation you guys are having, and I've actually been trying not to jump in because my volume of reading gives me an alternate perspective but i'm a really big fan of if you have to do a lot of work to read one thing properly that one thing wasn't written quite the way it needed to be so let me jump in when tony stark formed the 50 state initiative people were so angry at him the heroes tried to literally kill all the other heroes it became civil war and they all turned on each other and that was because tony stark started planning something big in secret. When Wanda starts to plan something big in secret, everybody tries to kill her because she's a woman. And <laughs> that's kind of that, I guess. Whenever Elektra's like, I'm going to reform the hand, Matthew, everybody's like, well, stop her. She's crazy. When Daredevil was like, I'm going to take over the hand and I'm going to reform the hand, everybody was like, no. And he was like, no, I'm, I promise I'm not evil. And they were like, no, Matt, this is bad. So then he put all of the cops in New York in cages in the sewers and all of the heroes tried to kill him and it was called Shadowland. There really is a history of whenever a character escalates in power or takes over an organization, everybody in the Marvel Universe just goes, well, I, I kill, I, we tried talking to them one time in a park, now kill them. And I, the thing that I do agree with you guys about is, is it always feels out of character. It always feels bizarre. It always feels like, why are you doing this? And that's 
exactly how I feel, even with all of that knowledge. I don't disagree with a, with a single word you guys have said. I It bothers me. I understand the narrative they're telling, but Shang-Chi is such a good guy. He's such a good guy. And like Daredevil would stand up for him, and Iron Man would stand up for him, and Luke Cage would stand up for him. And like Captain America says, if Luke Cage says it, I trust it. So shut the fuck up and trust it, shield boy. Trust it. And I'm, I'm completely with you guys. A thousand percent. So it's it's really just become a trope at this point that yeah heavy 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 trope <sighs> okay that's that's really frustrating <laughs> and I think the other thing that I found okay so when I read this issue the first time I sort of tossed my tablet down and was like you can fuck yourself with this Deus Ex Machina I I'm literally in my Thor outfit and for recording this and I have my hammers out in case I want to do pictures after this because you know Thor is my shit and I very much. Uh, loved this Thor appearance. Then all of a sudden, Shang-Chi's like, I'm a lightning god, because he was mentioned in a couple of pages ago, out of nowhere, having not been brought up a whole lot in as a lightning god who could be channeled in this. Like, It felt like it came out of nowhere that this was possible. And then it was mm-hmm. suddenly here, mm-hmm. and I was so annoyed because for Shang Chi to to go th- to this height to become this powerful doesn't bother me, but that it happens in like a panel suddenly kind of bothers me, and it felt so unfair to the character, and for it to be this magical power out of nowhere. But then when I reread it for my notes to do the episode, I was like, oh my god, that's how Shang Chi realized because even Meta Shang, that's that's the intelligence we're saying. Where is it? Mm-hmm. It's right there. He even said, no, 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 no. This is not just magically the real sword, and I am not just magically fighting. F- nope, nope, nope. This is fucked. And I loved that. And then he told the sword to melt Mjolnir. Yeah. And he was like, oh, oh crap. What did you do, Takeshi? Exactly. And that was, I think, the part that drew me in the most. I really loved this book. I felt maybe the battle system was a little redundant. I probably mm-hmm. would have liked a, a slightly different take on the battle system. <laughs> but I I really enjoyed this six issues, especially because of the payoff of the way Shang-Chi was able to show his intelligence in the end. How did you guys feel about the battle with Thor and Shang-Chi as semi-equals for a moment until Shang-Chi realized he ultimately had an upper hand, which he sacrificed? So that was actually my favorite part of the book. I mean, him turning into this thunder god and going head to head with Thor and them being pretty equal in power at that point. That was pretty cool. And then him realizing that that's not what should be happening and him finally realizing that there's something wrong with his family and that maybe he can't just fix things. That that gave me a little hope. Actually, one of my favorite lines is that Shang-Chi saying, you're not the only god of thunder. That was perfection. And I would love Marvel to explore other mythos and mythologies in terms of characters or weapons or whatever something like this. I, as I said before, really love this moment because it puts Shang-Chi in a really almost impossible decision spot, even though I don't, I personally don't think that's much of a hard thing to choose, but it it is a really interesting moral quandary that he was faced with. And I think he made the right decision, but I also know that that decision comes with its own set of consequences. I think Shang-Chi ultimately in this moment showcased 
case is that he cares about the greater good of the world as well as the reputation of the society as opposed to individual family members. And I like that. It does feel weird that I get why Sister Knife would be really upset by what's going on, but it it also calls into question her own character of, of something that I brought up in the first two issues about Esme. The other Esme. The other Esme, yeah. Esme and Takeshi of are they evil or are they characters who were defined by their environment to be evil? And those are two different things. There is, you know, internally, are you an evil and bad person or are you doing objective or quote unquote evil and bad things because that is the environment you're placed in? And it was an interesting question to think about their family because it seemed like they were willing to go along with Shang-Chi in this endeavor to do good. You know, Esme is throughout these issues, even though she hasn't had a lot to say, uh, talks about, you know, restraint and that how normally she would be killing people, but because Shang-Chi doesn't want her to, she doesn't. And it's a really interesting small moments of that characterization that I like. But seeing her so upset here, it does bring into question, oh, maybe they are just actually evil and they can't be reformed. And that, you know, sucks. And granted, it is a very stressful and probably traumatizing situation. Not that the entire family isn't. Uh, that entire family environment with Shang-Chi and their father isn't. But more so, to see your brother arrested and your other brother betray him, in a sense, it does suck. And it does, would be, you know, stressful. She also is younger, and she is a teenager going through her own, you know, self-journey of identity and stuff. I guess that's what I need a little more of. Are they, these fundamental characters, can they be redeemed? Can they walk the path of good? Or are they irredeemable? And both options are fine. I just need the answer to that question. Can they be redeemed or can they not be? Well, and I think that it's not so much a matter of she is instinctively... I don't know. I think she had a bad reaction because it's the first day. I think she's got a little bit of room to grow. I think my concern is that sort of seed of doubt that's planted in Shang Chi's mind, where he's like, maybe they don't like me so much. I just can't do this for another volume. I think that's maybe one of my only concerns. And I think part of why we don't have a whole lot more to say about that part of this issue is because we've been dealing with it for the last five issues. But one thing that is very unique to this issue and will play a role in issue seven is. Shang-Chi's mom. How did you guys feel about that part of the narrative continuing on in the background? And what do you think is coming for us in the next standalone issue? Mm, I wish I had a clue because I am confused, concerned. Is this his mom? Is this not his mom? Who is this? She's now being very cryptic in the way she speaks to Shang-Chi. I actually don't know if I have any guesses as to where her specific part and role in the story is going to go or come from. I truly don't know. I think it could go anywhere. Yeah, I'm I'm still really confused by where she sits in this narrative. It feels a little weird for a character who had been abandoned in the negative zone for so long to be concerned that family will continue to be there with for Shang-Chi even after seeing everything that has happened over these last couple of issues. I don't know. There's just something off about her character that I just can't place just yet. 
And I think that's part of the nature of a book where you're introduced to a large majority of your central characters and they don't appear anywhere else. None of these characters are appearing in other titles right now, which is part of what gave us that amazing moment between Mr. Fantastic and our favorite of the uh, siblings where, you know, he was like, oh, solid sound. I don't even what? Because they're not appearing anywhere else, this is the only place we're getting those sort of reactions. And it's kind of why we have trouble really understanding some of Shang-Chi's side characters. Now, it's no one else's job to take these characters and be like, hey, Gene, I'm taking your characters and you can't do shit about it. But it would be a really cool bit of synergy. It's sort of the way when I think back on Eternals, because I just did a bunch of Eternals research because of the upcoming episodes we're doing of our podcast over on Hubs Plus. But I, when I was doing research on it, I was reminded that while the Eternals as a family don't really cross over a whole lot, they did have an appearance in one issue of Greg Pak's Incredible Hercules, which also had Amadeus Cho, and it's just a really interesting thing. It just sort of strengthened that run by being another issue somewhere else, and I think this book would benefit from that as well. Jilan, she would be the most likely to show up since she is a mutant, so I'm kind of surprised with how big mutants are in the Marvel universe at this moment that she is stuck in this little Shang-Chi island. So something I've been thinking about is reading a lot of classic and older comics where there really were about maybe two handfuls of mutants and they were all relegated to certain books. Maybe one would venture off to something else, but there really weren't that many mutants until much later in comics life where now everybody in their, everybody's a mutant. It's kind of like being Italian. Everybody in your 20 cousins are Italian and related to one another. It doesn't always feel as special now when people are revealed to be a mutant because there are so many, and there are so many, literally A to the letter Z. I am fascinated to see if she would ever go to Kakawa, or if she ever would become more pledge-related to the mutant side of things, but I would love to find out more about her. I question where her loyalties lie at this point, because she turned, she did turn down Wolverine's invitation, but at the same time, she's working against Shang-Chi in the background, and I, I don't understand why why i also agree she doesn't really have much in terms of characterization so when we get to what i assume is the big bad of these issues and supposed to be the main antagonist to shang chi of recruiting her it doesn't actually beg to question why why like i get that if this was more involved with her father would make sense Mm. but it doesn't it involves shang chi somebody that she's never met before and granted putting blind faith into somebody isn't always the best idea, especially when you are a mutant in this Marvel world. It does seem weird that she was among those characters to want to take down slash betray Shang-Chi. But why? What exactly did Shang-Chi do? What does she have to possibly gain out of overthrowing Shang-Chi? There's not really enough focus on her to, in my opinion, justify her betraying him. There isn't a reason unless he's like staunchly anti-mutant or I, I truly would think she needs more of a spotlight to make her betrayal seem a lot more satisfying or understandable. Yeah, that's exactly how I 
feel uh, she had been outcast from the society be- by their father and Shang-Chi welcomed her back without any question and I I just don't understand why she would turn against him like this this there hasn't been enough explanation of her character's motivation she I mean she barely shows up in these issues other than a couple panels here and there and it's not giving us enough explanation on why she's siding with this other character and it's it's puzzling I think it might even be the same reason though that Shang-Chi refused to believe it about his family there's a sense of if only we could fix our family through this and I think even though there is a betrayal they still don't like the heroes the heroes are still the enemy and I think that's part of it as well now here's my question for you guys with the potentiality of a new arc what are you guys hoping for from the future of this series well, I'm I'm definitely hoping for some explanation on what's going on in Jilan's head. <laughs> I, I definitely need to know what her motivation is. I need to know what this other guy's deal is because we've we've only been getting what a page each issue with him, and this is the first time that we've seen him outside of Shadow. Interesting so, point. I like. Yeah. I hadn't thought of that perspective. He's a very shadowy figure, and I don't have enough information other than he. He doesn't like Shang-Chi and I, I need I need more information in order to care. I am hoping for a good resolution with the mom. I wonder what or if the twist will be. I'm hoping for more interactions with Shang-Chi and his family. I, I think if this is okay. So if the Fantastic Four is a family book and it's about that family of the Fantastic Family and this book title I think mirrors a lot of what the Fantastic Four does but we're not getting a enough of that family interaction. It's a lot about family, but the family doesn't really interact. It's a lot of Shang-Chi making a decision, Takeshi and Esme being confused by the decision because it's not what their father would do, Shang-Chi saying I'm not my father, and then going along with the decision, the other two just going along with what he does. So I think I need a lot more or let me phrase that, I think I want a lot more dynamic between them because that's what I've been finding the most interesting out of this title is those relationships. And I agree. I think the central thing that I've enjoyed about this book has been watching these characters develop and watching how they interact with one another. Now, like I said a little while ago, I really think the book could benefit significantly from a redetermination of Shang-Chi's place in the Marvel Universe. Perhaps if next arc, maybe not one of these heroes, but a hero could work with Shang-Chi and could be like, no, I, I kind of vouch for him. You know, he's not the worst. And the other heroes could see that delineation, see that he turned in his brother immediately, recognized the pain this causes him within his family, then I think it could all be worth it. We don't really know enough about the way this book is being produced or with what design in mind. So I think in some ways, we could be heading toward a title that is meant to be six interconnected minis, and at the end of it, it'll be super satisfying. But at the moment, I do find myself hoping that wherever this series goes, it's going to keep in mind that we can further develop these characters together. 